Hello and welcome to Mythmakers, the podcast for fantasy fans and fantasy creatives, brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. And today I'm delighted to say I have a special guest from the city of Oxford itself, and that is Caroline Jones. And Caroline runs the Story Museum right in the heart of our city. So hello, Caroline. Hello, Julia. Nice to see you. Now, I thought um, everyone would be interested to hear from Caroline because she presides over a fantastic, relatively new museum that uh, I hope that people coming to Oxford will definitely put on the agenda to come and visit. But Caroline, before we talk about the museum itself, maybe we can hear a little bit about you and your journey to heading up this museum and your relationship with books. Pleasure. So, um Whilst on maternity leave with my second child, so I'm going back seven years now, I was walking through the streets of Oxford and as is often the way with Oxford, I came upon these big gates, big wooden doors, gates, uh, which unusually for Oxford were slightly ajar. Um, Oxford is a place with lots of high walls and closed gates, unless you're very lucky and you can visit one of these places every other Tuesday at 9.30 for five minutes. But uh, on this occasion, the gate was ajar and... I pushed it open and I found myself in a courtyard um, and intrigued as to what the building was. I did a bit of research and discovered it was a there was a project underway to build in this place the world's first museum of stories, which I found such a completely compelling and uh, visionary idea that I offered my services. <laughs> I must have been slightly sleep deprived. Uh, because of the small child yes. I said why don't I come and help you my background is in fundraising I've spent 20 years working in producing theatre and particularly raising money for buildings uh, the Royal Shakespeare Company in Stratford the Roundhouse in London the Young Vic also in London so can I become part of your your project your vision um, so that was seven years ago and eight years later somehow in 2021 um I'm now museum director and CEO. It's been an incredible journey. Uh, we've we have successfully created the world's first story museum for children and families in the heart of Oxford, as you say. Yes, I've popped in many times over the years, um, seeing seeing it from its sort of very bare wall packing case stage because it was originally a telephone exchange wasn't it it was so so the, the site itself being in the middle of oxford unsurprisingly it's got a rich history um dating back to the medieval medieval times and and scribes sitting in what we believe were the cellars um there's there's some really interesting connections uh to, to the site itself but um we've had it the charity's had it since about 2010 11 and it's take so it's taken 10 years to get us through a sort of master planning stage and and we've delivered the the capital project in stages we were advised early on to just do it literally in chapters like a book so just open your first chapter and let people read it and see what they think um and so the period of redevelopment that we just completed between 2018 and 2020 were to bring the building into full use so all 2000 square meters are now fit for purpose as galleries we have a theater we have learning studios play spaces um it's a huge site in the middle of oxford that children and families can come and immerse themselves in stories 
And it's not just dedicated to stories that originate in Oxford, of course, um, but Oxford itself does have a very rich, almost unrivaled tradition of storytelling here. What's the relationship between what you can see in museum and the Oxford writers that we all know of? Well, so where else to build a museum of stories? Oxford is its natural home, being a city of stories. So, in fact, we like like all museums, we have a collection, and our collection is largely an intangible one. So we have the 1001 Stories Collection. And so we have a collecting policy um, uh, that, that helps us to decide ourselves, and in fact, our children and, and family visitors who help us decide what stories go in our collection. Uh, and one of the criteria is about relationship to Oxford. So, it, so the stories... Fortunately for us, it's it's difficult to to um to find a story that doesn't have some loose tangential connection to Oxford because so many writers have passed through the city um, and so many fictional characters started uh, and spent some time in the city. So uh, so it's a beautifully rich um resource for us. So you can find stories very cleverly and closely associated with Oxford in our museum as well as from around the world. So. Perhaps you could just do an imaginary walkthrough um, once you arrive in the courtyard. What are your choices when you're? It's <gasps> my favourite question. An imaginary walkthrough. So, um, so you push those big wooden doors mm -hmm. that I described, and you, and you enter into a courtyard. Um, and as a visitor, and if you're a typical visitor the, to the museum, you're probably a family, uh, probably with children, sort of from early years through to teenage early teenage years and at that point you can do one of four things you can go to our galleries which takes you on a journey through stories so you start in our whispering wood uh, um, you will discover the roots of oral stories pun intended and you have stories whispered in your ears uh, you 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 move through the trees in our wood you then move to our enchanted library where you find stories uh, that have moved to page and, and screen, and you um, can step into story worlds that we've created uh, with, in some cases, very familiar moments from stories that most people know, um, and in other cases, stories that we've very deliberately chosen because maybe not so many people know them, but we think they bring a real real importance to the, to the display and to the interpretation. Um, uh, you can visit our treasure chamber, which is our temporary exhibition space, um, which has a, a sort of six to eight monthly rotation of, of temporary exhibitions, also very much rooted in our 1001 story collection that I mentioned. So you can move through those galleries at your own pace. Um, your second choice is to go to our small worlds, which is a space especially for very young children. So this is a space that really celebrates picture books. Yeah. Um, and you will engage in a, in a session that's, that's a relatively structured session, um, bookended with songs and storytelling with our story guides, our fabulous story guides. Um, but as the adult carer with your young child, you're encouraged to take the child around the space and allow them to play in, in the various little story worlds that they'll find there. Uh, but we find that um, adult carers, whether they're, you know, professional parents with four or five children or a first-time parent or grandparent um, or a nursery worker, adults also need almost permission to play. And, and we do a lot of work to encourage adults to learn how to play through story and, and how to um connect with their child over that precious story time that they can share together so that's option two option three is you can go to our city of stories and that's a 25 minute long film that's uh, that's about the literary the rich literary heritage of oxford um, and and many fantasy writers and stories are are presented through that short film or your fourth option is to go to our theater we have a hundred seat theater called the woodshed and it's so called because the walls happen to be lined with uh doors that we've 
sort of we've wombled, we've discovered them in various bits, they've dropped off bits of the university or we found them in, in stately homes, they don't need them anymore. Because wood is beautiful, um, it's beautiful to look at, it, it, it adds a lovely warm colour and texture to the room, but acoustically it's super helpful. So for a theatre that, that is predominantly around storytelling, oral storytelling and performances for very small children, um, the wood serves our purpose beautifully and there's definitely not something nasty in our woodshed, there's something exciting and imaginative always. Perhaps you should just explain the word wombled to... Oh, I do that. So what the, the wombles are a strange tribe of small creatures who live on Wimbledon Common um, and who collect rubbish. So they, they were environmentally conscious and sustainable way before it was fashionable. Uh, they collect rubbish and they, they used to reuse and upcycle it. So the Story Museum has a long-standing um, aesthetic, really, to reuse and, and upcycle bits of furniture. We've, we've taken this, this historical site and we've completely given it another life. So we've even reused our building. So that's yeah, so very just, much at yeah. the heart of what we do. So just Does that explain it? Yeah, we should add in they are fictional <laughs> before people oh, yeah, start we... <laughs> going onto Wimbledon Common. Uh, oh just well, we're, we're we're talking with people who like fantasy. Wombles are as real as you want as you want them to be. Yeah, exactly. They are. They, they they began life in a story. There is a wonderful song that goes with it too, which I remember fondly from my childhood. Um, and just to check, you don't have to have a child in tow if you're visiting Oxford. Absolutely not. So when I say you're probably a family with children aged between about three and 15. You don't have to be. And indeed, we run a very successful monthly storytelling club with Crick Crack, who are one of the UK's most preeminent storytelling networks. And, and they, they are fairy tales, especially for grown-ups. There might be the occasional rude word and gesture. So children are not allowed in our adult storytelling events. And I can attest there's an extremely good cafe as well, which I think, you know, you should always mention that because... Lovely cafe, fabulous combination. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, our charity at the Oxford uh, Centre for Fantasy, we're particularly interested in the Inklings. And in that, we've got both Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, famous for Narnia and Middle Earth. I remember seeing you have a Through the Wardrobe exhibition room, don't you, which is a wonderful space for people to capture that moment of pushing through the wardrobe. Absolutely. So one of the things we do, I've mentioned these story worlds. So we're very much about creating an immersive environment or a narrative environment is another way of describing it, into which a person can step and immediately find themselves in a moment in a story. And, and that's quite challenging because you, we can't assume and we mustn't assume that the person coming through the wardrobe or down the rabbit hole knows the story because, because that's an assumed knowledge. So we have to find a moment which is both familiar and universal. So if you don't know the story, you're still going to experience something really special in that moment. Um, the Story Museum has been running pop-up exhibitions on site for a number of years. So prior to redeveloping and, and completing the museum, as I described to you, we had various pop-up temporary exhibitions. And um, one of them included, possibly inevitably for a museum of stories, a wardrobe door which sat quite discreetly almost unnoticeable at the end of a long gallery um children are pretty inquisitive they'll always open the wardrobe door they're not going to walk past the door without trying it so they would open the door and they would step into the wardrobe and they would feel the tickle of the fur coats on their nose um and not least because it's an old building and really leaky and quite cold, they would step through the fur coats and low be in a cold, snowy environment. So we'd, we had the White Witch's sleigh um, and we had uh, trees and beautiful um, 
actual trees that we had installed and snow that felt cold to touch. And if you climbed into the sleigh, you would find a little box of Turkish delight and you might even be bold enough to take a piece of Turkish delight and enjoy it. And then if you listened, you would hear the wind in the trees and occasionally you would hear extract of the story being being told to you. So we did that in our previous museum. We couldn't not then recreate something similar in our, in our permanent office. So we do in our enchanted library, uh, we do indeed have a wardrobe door. And now that COVID restrictions are more or less gone or at least reduced, we can descend the fur coat. So visitors have to come through the fur coats and step into the snowy environment. And there's a rather lovely digital interaction. So you can hear Mr. Tumnus um, as he carries it and you can see the parcels tumbling into the snow by use of magic, otherwise known as digital projection. And um, it's a rather special moment. And, and it is one of my favorite things to hear children, visitors pushing open the door and finding themselves in this snowy landscape. It's, it's lovely. And are uh, children still as intrigued by the uh, worlds of Tolkien and Lewis as previous generations? Does, does they, do they still work as stories? They absolutely work as stories. I mean, children's are, children have a natural affinity with, with fantasy. Being the, the lines between reality and imagination are so thinly, uh, thinly placed for them. So they, they move quite fluidly between their imaginative worlds, their own interior imagination or worlds that are created for them. So they, they, they completely immerse themselves and, and enter this world and, and believe it to be true. It's amazing the extent to which, well, adults as well, we suspend our disbelief just for a moment and you uh, and you know that you're standing in a museum on, on some level and you're also prepared to just go with the story which is that you're about to encounter Mr Tumnus as he comes around the corner with his with his parcels so um I know my own children so my children are eight and eleven and um they have not yet read the tomes they feel like big hefty weighty books mm. um for small children to tackle but they know the story almost intimately through their experiences in the museum, through, of course, watching them on film, which is quite often the way stories uh, children will encounter these stories to start with. Whether they then reverse into the books is an interesting question. Um, yeah. I, I know my children prefer... Um, things that are fantastical can sometimes be a bit scary because the, the the rules of life that you rely on and as a child you you possibly come to trust and to need as a, as a, as a form of security are all gone. Uh, and you're, you're so um, my 11 year old I know finds it much easier to read a scary book than watch a scary film because she'll just she'll put the book down and she'll step out of the world somehow whereas a film somehow seems to create it's too complete so it's it's almost too much it could be too overwhelming whereas with a book she's in control a little bit more about the extent to which she moves into that space and then backs out of the space yes which I find intriguing there's that brilliant Neil Gaiman um, quote, isn't there? It's something along the lines of, I'm slightly misquoting here, that uh, fantasy doesn't teach us that dragons don't exist, but that dragons can be overcome. So yes. the idea is that you can actually take them on, which prepares you way for the battles of real life. That's uh, brilliant. Yeah. That's brilliant. Absolutely. You have that up in the museum somewhere. <laughs> yes, we should. We have lots of Neil Gaiman quotes, but not that one. Um, so... You've touched on, uh, Caroline, on the idea of many children come at these things via film. How mm. do you, are you mainly about books or do you also have a place for film in your um, so, uh, remit? So, so we deal in stories in all forms. So our 1001 collection that I mentioned um, ha has stories in a range of forms, starting with oral, the oral tradition. 
mm. um, moving through page and stage and and indeed screen. So so we do have a film category. Uh, but what we really like is when a story has materialized in multiple forms, yeah. because that that suggests that they're that they are enduring that they that they have endured such that people decide to recreate or reimagine stories in different forms so um you know it is of course true that many children encounter stories first through film and tv and indeed computer vert computer narratives um don't get me started on books that start as films and end up as books i can't i just i i don't allow I'm terribly <laughs> judgmental that crosses the, the line for you it just it? it's not it just doesn't work that because um, at the museum we are often heard to say we always start with a story because in our experience whether we're creating a huge outdoor participatory event for hundreds of people whether we're creating a new immersive exhibition whether we're creating a um a new Christmas show if you start with a story you give your experience a, a, an integrity you give it a core mm-hmm. from from the inside out if you somehow start with an extrapolation of a story and reverse into it, it just doesn't, it doesn't satisfy. It never feels to me quite good enough. It feels too much like a, a franchise that's just extending itself into a different form. Um, and I disapprove of such things. <laughs> I mean, that is one of the pleasures if children have started the wrong way around and they've started with the film and then go to the book. At least when you get the book, you get so much more. You absolutely. get absolutely. So just thinking of Lord of the Rings, there's so much they couldn't put in, otherwise we'd still be sitting in the cinema. So <laughs> when you do go back to it, things don't happen in quite the same way. So you've got a whole new set of characters, things are all adjusted and you get a much a different, completely different and valid experience. So maybe your your kids will, you know, overcome uh, overcome it overcome i tell you what pick up the book something we learned early at the museum is that um there are some stories that feel familiar even if you if you might not name them by which i mean uh, the disney franchise frozen this is a little known film involving some princesses and some ice some years ago were was of course a massive phenomenon particularly for young girls as it happened so when at the museum we held a frozen weekend they all came along in their branded costumes a la the Disney film they ended up yes singing along to the film which they loved but also hearing an oral telling of the Snow Queen and experiencing different versions of that story as it had traveled from its traditional oral roots I think in Germany I think that's correct many thousands of years ago and and up to the Disney version of the same story and we quite often play with that you know the spectrum of a story where it started where it's ended up how something like Cinderella can almost spontaneously spring up in oral form in three different places at once and almost have the same story backbone, which is a fascinating phenomenon. And and just to share some of that with our visitors is a a real pleasure. And hopefully one of the things we try and do is is just offer visitors a jumping off point, um, ask them questions, provoke curiosity that they then can go away and continue thinking about in their own time. We love introducing visitors to new stories and then they continue uh, that story once they leave the museum that's that's our ideal I think I must be one of the very few people in the world who's actually never watched Frozen I had children at the wrong age from that they were already grown up and way beyond that when it came out and so I'm a I finally you know I heard about this song that was everywhere <laughs> there's a big there's a big song I mean there the, is the success song. of the and film I is at least think I know Yes, because you see, like you were saying, you feel you know because so much of it has been talked about. Yeah, but I haven't actually sat down. It's not so bad. I'm not a massive uh, proponent of particularly Disney princesses as a as a category of story character, but actually Elsa from that film 
is she's she's on the way to becoming a slightly more liberated, um, self-fulfilling female character. Uh, and then actually over subsequent years, they've got even better at ensuring their female characters are not simply princesses that need rescuing, which I appreciate. Um, I love, I absolutely adore the Snow Queen as a story, the original yes. story. Yes. Um, so perhaps I should give it a chance. You but... should, maybe, maybe. Mm. So yes, anyway. so that's that's what you might find in the museum when it comes to fantasy and much else besides. So obviously um, Oxford is a place of living authors as well as all those who have passed before. And I know as an author living in the city myself that many of us come and go in the um doing events at the museum and having partnership but obviously you, we've got some big names some you know in terms of the big five of the safari uh world hanging around oxford of whom philip pullman is yeah. a very notable one yeah uh, do you have much about his fantasy world the lyra world absolutely well philip is actually it's he's a patron of the museum mm-hmm. and a huge supporter and in again in the enchanted library somewhere in between the alice space and the narnia space and the and various other spaces, we have a His Dark Materials space. So we 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 have a, a moment from The Subtle Knife, uh, which is when Lyra and the young boy Will are given, well, Will specifically is given the knife. Mm-hmm. And um, and so we've recreated, again, using quite a digital technology. That's interesting because I've talked about two spaces, both of which use digital technology, but actually that's unusual. We, we tend to use digital technology to, to enchant and enhance experience rather than to, to be the sole mechanism of the experience. So, but in this particular instance, there's projection and and audio, and it's very atmospheric. And it's down a dark, stony corridor. So you have to be quite a brave five or six-year-old to venture down that corridor and see what's at the end of it. Um, we also have the only alethiometer that exists in the world, as far as we know, on display in our library. It's beautiful. And so intricate, and it really works. There's a there's a film of Philip demonstrating how you can turn the dials and and watch the the symbols move around. It's it's really beautiful. Oh wow! I I think I did see that, but I haven't seen the film of Philip actually manipulating yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's in there in the same space. Yeah. yeah. And I suppose we should also touch on we're living through time, changing times, mm-hmm. and a lot of the stories we've been talking about refer to a Western tradition, mm-hmm. um, you know, with white prote- protagonists. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are you doing to diversify? I know you're doing a lot, but what mm-hmm. are you doing to diversify um, how people can relate to story? It's a really important question, Julia. So I already mentioned the fact that oral stories are part of our collection. And in fact, we have a whole gallery dedicated to the oral tradition. And and by virtue of starting our story journey there, we're drawing on the widest range of tradition from different cultures and drawing on different cultural traditions. So so that's our starting point. And then we, we work hard to make sure that the displays, the interpretation that's available to visitors are representative of the communities that live around, with and around us. In, in just in Oxford um, is, a, is a hugely diverse place. Um, and then, of course, out into the rest of the country, um, we want to make sure that every child that comes to the museum can see themselves somewhere in, in the representation of the stories that we, that we share with them. Uh, we also have a very um, active outreach and targeted project program that's working with particular communities within Oxford and we're working hard to start collecting their traditional stories so whether it be nursery rhymes or oral tales that they remember from wherever they've come from and um, and so that that work is ensuring that the basis 
from which we tell our stories is as rich and as representative as it can be. It is also true that when you go to the Uncharted Library, there is a predominance of a certain type of author because the because the fantasy tradition, you know, as you say, the big five, <laughs> they are who they are. The, the stories are as significant as they are because they're hugely successful. So we'd be doing them and the fantasy tradition a disservice if we didn't duly celebrate and 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 um, showcase that work. As long as that we're balancing that with the newer stories and the newer authors and and, and fictional characters that are that are arriving on the scene every day. So it's a, so it's a, we have to be continually vigilant to make sure that what the visitor encounters is going to resonate and be relevant to them. Thank you. That's been absolutely fascinating. And uh, maybe people listening to this all around the world will be thinking we could do one of those in our backyard. So um, obviously story is globally significant with its own little hotspots in other places. It'd be wonderful to think of lots of sister organizations popping up. Funnily enough, we've I've had two emails randomly in the last week, one from a person in Lancashire and another one from a person in Dagenham, both saying, can can you tell us how you've done it? Because we'd quite like to do what you've done in our communities. And I am so excited to talk to them and, and just try and think a bit about how they could create a similar sort of environment in, in their own communities. That is absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Well, you may get swamped with emails now. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, to finish off, we always have a section in the Mythmakers podcast where we think of all the fantasy worlds that we know, be it in a book or a film or a play, and we think where would be the best place to go for something. So it might be where is the best place to go to drink in a tavern or visit a library. Uh, In your honour, I thought we would have where is the best place in all the fantasy worlds to go to visit a museum. So I wonder if you have any that you can think of. So that the um, in Eva Ibbotson's story, Journey to the River Sea, there is a museum that the children encounter. And, and the curator of the museum is a rather wonderful um, gentleman who's a collector of natural history. Um, and I was always rather thrilled at the, the prospect of this museum in an, in an apparent sort of backwater in um in the Amazonian rainforest, I think it is, isn't it? So uh, so there's a museum in a book that I was always very, very drawn to and intrigued by. Um, and Eva Ibbotson, also a local lady. Absolutely, absolutely. So so, so, um, so very much a focus for the museum. And, and I suppose if I was to create a museum somewhere, uh, I don't think one exists. I sort of can't believe there isn't a museum in the Discworld series. I'm sure there is. I haven't encountered one yet, but there are many, many books and... I think I just probably haven't found it, but I think I'd like to curate a museum in the disc world. I can imagine them lampooning it brilliant, well, exactly. brilliantly in that world. <laughs> exactly. But that won't be that's why it would be fun. I think for me, I, I thought of um two things. One thing is I've actually written a whole fantasy book set in a sort of Victorian uh, huge museum which represents the history of science. So it's it it further back in the museum you go the older the scientific theories become and it also sort of breaks down and becomes doors are closed off and it the space represents a kind of history and I loved thinking that up and inventing a museum which is loosely based on um, places like the Natural History Museum in London and the one here in Oxford so that I've already sort of thought about this as a fantasy writer myself but I've also just read um, Piranesi which is the um, uh, yeah. 
thank you, Susanna Clark yeah. has just come out, which would you say that's a museum? It's a kind of museum. It's a place of statues in empty halls. So it felt like a vast museum to me, sort of ideas. Uh, and if you're an adult and looking for a really interesting fantasy read that has this museum quality, I would highly recommend that book. Oh, that's fantastic. I've just, in fact, I've just gifted that to a colleague at the museum because I know she's a fan of Susanna Clark, having lent me the Dr. Jonathan. I'm going to get it the wrong way around. Jonathan Strange and Dr. Norrell, is that right? Which also has the talking statues, of course, in the church. It has the sculptures and the statues that, that uh, just start shouting and singing, which I've rather enjoyed. Yeah. So thank you very much, Caroline. And we'll be putting a link to the fantastic website that the Story Mu Museum has in the show notes. So you can have a look and hopefully put it on your agenda when you actually get to come to Oxford itself. So thank you and goodbye. Thanks for listening to Mythmakers Podcast, brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. Visit OxfordCentreForFantasy.org to join in the fun. Find out about our online courses, in-person stays in Oxford, plus visit our shop for great gifts. Tell a friend and subscribe wherever you find your favourite podcasts worldwide.